the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. Join Martin as he conducts regular Q&A sessions on topics of interest to Christians serious about their faith. These Q&A sessions will continue to cover an ever-widening range of topics, all with an eye to honoring the command to let all things be done unto edification. Good afternoon. We are just doing a little setup here in advance of uh, starting our Q&A session, Chalcedon Questions and Answers. And it is uh, Sunday, again at 2 o'clock Central Daylight Savings Time. We're going to uh, start our session uh, when we get to it in a moment with a uh, follow-up question from last week. One of the final questions last week uh, involved the issue of uh, discipline of children. And uh, I'm, my answer was a little bit on the incomplete side, and someone caught it, which is good. Uh, and as so far as it went, my answer was correct, but there was an important proviso there, and it was uh, drawn to our attention by one of our uh, participants and one of our sponsors. Ah, good. Good to see Andrea's in. And uh, it would be worthwhile going through some of the uh, implications of that answer as we fill it out more properly. Uh, it was Nancy Wilk who posed that question. And what she had asked or said was, uh, Regarding teaching children to obey, would you agree that it is of utmost importance that biblical parenting should have at its core God's moral standard, in other words, the Ten Commandments, and discipline from that point of reference? My thought is that without that as the parent's point of reference and goal, their discipline, quote-unquote, is a form of tyranny. And I reply briefly uh, <clears throat> in writing, uh, that this raises the question of what ought to be obeyed. You know, what is the moral uh, content versus what I called a raw, abstract obedience. And so that's what we have to have. You know, there's there's a point where you can't have lawless discipline because all power that's exercised lawlessness is, by definition, tyranny. If you look up Dr. Rashtuni's analyses on this point, you can see it's a, a refrain throughout his works. Tyranny is the lawless exercise of power and therefore results in domination and not godly dominion, which is always under law. So that's important point number one, is that, uh, yes, you do encroach into the area of tyranny, and you would tyrannize your children if it's a lawless approach. Elsewhere, Dr. Rashtuni points out correctly that God gave the law as a means to mediate between man and man, not, you know, not only just man and God, but man and man, that all, therefore all relationships between us and our children, for that matter, parent and child, man to man, man to wife, are all to be mediated by the law of God. It provides the way of uh, peace and the way of justice and what is good and right and emphasizes and brings out the, the best in us, if you will. Uh, it brings out what God expects, what God requires. And therefore, when the law is absent, and something else is mediating at that stage. So we, uh, we have to move forward in terms of uh, exactly this, this scenario. The law of God needs to be inculcated, and both parent and child are obligated to it. So, good to see. If, uh, Mark is still preaching, we're, here, we're hearing. Well, if that's the case, should we, as they say, bug out and come back when he's clear, or should we continue? 
And there's one of those one, uh, strained, uncomfortable silences that are the earmark of live video. Since we didn't get any, uh, any feedback on that point. Well, we can certainly come back. Uh, we can... Uh... Oh, I see the problem. <laughs> well, that's true. Uh, on the Chalcedon website, uh, I guess that, that, that means we ought to postpone and come back online. So I can continue if I wish, and people can c connect to us later and get caught up on the first part. Uh, they started late. Well, that's okay. So did we on this side of the, uh, <laughs> the Rocky Mountains. I think we'll continue. Uh, even if that means we might not get so many uh, questions because folks are still uh, listening to uh, what Mark has to say on his text. Okay, good. I have an official word from the judges. We'll continue this Q&A even if we do have these uh, uncomfortable silences. So, back to the point about the, uh, the notion that the law of God is the mediator. Uh, not a capital M mediator as Christ is between God and man, but mediator between man and man insofar as it's it, that it is uh, our Creator says this is the way to walk, walk ye in it. This is the way, walk ye in it. And when you walk in this path, then all the blessings that accrue to obedience, to fulfilling our uh, entire charter as uh, creatures, redeemed creatures under Him, can be fulfilled. When we veer off that path, then harm is inflicted, injustice is inflicted, uh, things that might not be so easy to take back uh, are imposed. Uh, between man and man, and this is where the conflict and strife arise because the law of God is not being honored by one party or the other. And so when the law of God mediates, we have uh, peace, we have joy and all the fruits of the Spirit because, of course, the Spirit has a hand to play in making the law of God alive in our hearts, in our minds, in our walks, in, our, in everything that we do and say and, and think and preach and teach. So the teaching of children does, in fact, have content, and that content it begins with the, the Ten Commandments and all the corollaries of them. So I think that's an important point. Uh, and there's a lot to be said about how we mediate, uh, how the Law of God mediates these things. At the uh, Future of Christendom Conference, which was uh, just recently held in uh, Wyoming, Pennsylvania, and I was a guest speaker there for a breakout session, there was an excellent uh, message given by Tim Yarbrough, uh, also a uh, supporter of Chalcedon and one of the most uh, uh, interesting and on-fire individuals I know uh, in terms of practical impact, uh, taking these ideas and putting uh, the rubber to the road. Uh, and he began his discussion with a fascinating um, squib or little snippet, if you will, about why it is that you would, uh, when an old person entered the room, that you would stand up. Why would you do that? He said, and we did it back in the day, as he put it, because we knew what would happen if we didn't do it. But it, as he pointed out, it was never explained why they should do it. And then he came across the verse in the scriptures that tells you, you know, to, to rise up and honor the hoary head and the aged. Uh, and so this is another area where God is mediating the relationship between generations, one of honor, if you will, uh, to those who have gone before. Now, is that a an, an unqualified one? In other words, do we honor or the wicked, and things on this order. I don't think that's uh, anywhere near what the scripture is talking about. It presupposes everybody's on the same playing field and operating in terms of the covenant that Israel was to walk by. So in that context, we'd say no. But there again, we have a relationship. 
Is that a tyrannical? No. It, now we, the, again, that kind of goes back to what I was saying last week, that the child now is being formed in his character in terms of uh, expectations that are now anchored to Scripture. So instead of being an arbitrary, you better get up when an old man comes in the room, it's here's where Scripture requires it, and then why it requires it, where the blessing has come from in doing these things. So all I have to say, the notion of obedience in Scripture is never contentless. There's always a content behind it. It's not abstract, and it's important to know what abstract means. It means that you are essentially uh, pulling something out, uh, the heart of something out, and therefore it's not the entire thing anymore. It might be the core of it, but now that it's been divorced and severed from everything else that it relates to, there's an, an inherent unrealness to it. That means that you are several steps removed from the reality. And because you're several steps removed from the reality, uh, dealing with abstractions can create problems, can result in error, false steps, false moves. So the same thing is true with the Word of God. If you start to abstract concepts from it uh, out of their original content, you're not just um, doing what we call general equity and elaborating for new contexts, new applications, but are literally abstracting something. Uh, you denature it. You denude it of its full fullness. And when you do that, you're not getting the Word of God anymore. You're getting something that is um, like what we do to modern med uh, foods and things like that. Uh, you, you boil it down, there's a little bit of powder left, and that's the abstraction. So all that to say, abstraction has its place in certain parts of philosophy in a limited way, but as a general practice, it's dangerous because now we're no longer dealing specifically with the whole counsel of God. We've boiled, down, uh, boiled away some of it in order to get to something that we think is a little bit more easy to handle. And in that process, uh, we lose, you know, like they say, you lose the vitamins if you cook the carrot, carrots. Same kind of concept, except far more uh, serious in terms of its impact on your lives. Uh, thank you, Anto, for joining us, and Giorgio. Um, uh, we don't have an official question yet for this week, so we're uh, certainly looking forward to seeing what, uh, what might bubble up from uh, those who are paying attention and finding value in these things. Appreciate the thumbs up. Interesting symbol when you think about it. So, do we have a question? No, I have not had a chance to dig in too deep to what Mark was talking about. I assume he was dealing with um, Matthew 13 at this point, based on where he was last week, which would put him smack dab in the middle of the parables, the kingdom parables of Christ. And uh, he and I had a brief discussion just this last week about one of those parables, the Wheat and Tares parables, and how to account for its teaching in a post-millennial setting. So I gave him some clues that I, I think uh, would help him um, move along and explain that in a more coherent way than has usually been attributed to that particular parable, which I regard as generally very much under misunderstood. And it, being misunderstood, it leads to pessimistic expectations based on it, as if it's the the one control principle that everything else has to bow to. And uh, that is a dangerous principle, especially if we've misinterpreted that parable. And in my view, we very much have misinterpreted the parable. So the question is, do I risk repeating uh, what Dr. Rashtuni said? Oh boy, Ford, thank you for that question. F women should wear head coverings during service. What would 
that have to do with the sake of the angels? Well, there is an, an article that uh, was published in the Westminster Theological uh, Journal back in the late 70s that I think uh, spoke to that. And I can certainly provide it. I actually gave a link to uh, Andrea on that particular question. So uh, I think it alone explains that, that particular difficulty. Those who are interested in uh, finding out what was said, I think it was uh, James, well, it was James B. Hurley, but it was someone that might have been. You know, but whoever it was who wrote that it was worthwhile. Uh, and, and we'll leave it there for the moment, since I don't have it handy. Adam Moore asks, can you define your version of post-mill, and can you give us the names of other idealist post-mills? Well, uh, Dr. Rushtuni certainly was an idealist post-mill, and uh, Warfield was. Uh, Andrew Sandlin uh, also identifies himself as an idealist post-mill. Uh, and I guess we should uh, define what idealism means. Idealism refers to one of four predominant schools of interpretation of the Book of Revelation. And the question at heart of these four titles, these four isms, are where do we place these visions of John? In preterism, they're all placed predominantly in the first century A.D. In futurism, the bulk of them are placed way up into the future, uh, perhaps imminent future, but nonetheless they are in the future, they haven't yet happened. In uh, historicism, the visions of John are understood to take place between the first and second advents, at least up through Revelation 20-ish, 21. And uh, they're treated as being in an essentially chronological order. Idealism agrees with historicism that the proper home for these uh, prophecies and visions of John is between the advents. In other words, they span 20 centuries already. Idealism differs from historicism and not seeing the visions as chronological. Rather, it sees a series of seven, approximately, individual sections, each one which winds back the clock and uh, looks again at the exact same period of time from the first to second advent, this time from a different facet, a different angle, revealing new details that weren't there in the previous survey of the prior vision. And so there's a big difference in how we handle them. In essence, the idealist view comes closest to how we deal with Isaiah. And no one's going to go look at Isaiah and say all the visions of Isaiah are chronological. We admit that they are not. They go back and forth as the needs may be for the people who are receiving the word of God from the prophet's lips. And therefore, the, book, the idealist approach uh, has advantages and disadvantages. One of the uh, obvious advantages is that you could always make it fit by simply saying, well, we're not there yet, or we don't know what part of each of these visions is there. The advantage of preterism is that it takes seriously the so-called time texts, which are considered contextual clues that uh, should control the interpretation of the rest of the book. There are inherent problems with some of those cues in preterism, and, uh, and others are uh, serious challenges to the other views. I think uh, that these idea that these events would occur shortly uh, certainly is something that the futurists have a difficult time with. They have to alter the meaning of the word take and things in this order in the Greek uh, to, to, to make, make a force fit. In my view, idealism, uh, insofar as it sweeps between the advents, squeezes in acceptably, if uh, uncomfortably, uh, into that fit. Now, the rest of the so-called clues in preterism relate to, say, the presence of a temple, still standing temple, apparently, in Revelation 11.1. 1. 
and uh, identification of the beast and other uh, things on this order. So they look in the uh, throughout the history, say Josephus, and see correlations, and these correlations are given an adequate weight uh, as uh, strong fits, giving us what's known as an inductively strong case that this all happened before. But when you look a little bit closer at these identifications, you can see that they're not as strong as at first glance, and uh, that creates issues. For example, the temple in Revelation 11 is destroyed. Um, well, the temple in Revelation that Revelation talks about historically was destroyed, but the notion of measuring it with the staff, the rod, uh, means to preserve it, and it wasn't preserved. And this led a lot of the 19th century liberal scholars, like Renan, to say, this proves that Revelation is a false prophecy because it predicted the temple would survive, and it certainly didn't. So what has to happen then is we play this game in preterism, I call it that, they, it's probably not the fair way to put it, um, but it doesn't look successful to me. Because you say, okay, Revelation 11.1, 1, we use that to prove there's a literal temple, but at Revelation 11.2, we relax that requirement, and boom, it's not a literal temple anymore. It's a symbolic one. See, So there we have a problem again, right? And I certainly have gone on record that uh, the notion of Nero fulfilling the 666 is rife with issues, particularly because the Nero and Kaiser uh, properly spelled out with all the evidence that we have going back to 48 AD, uh, that title, um, that that form of Khazar is uh, has a letter Yod in it, which makes your sum off by a factor of 10. So the number of neuron Khazar would actually be 676, not 666. That said, preterism certainly has its very strong expositors, and we want to see more uh, evidence uh, from it. So uh, idealism. We take uh, all these visions rather as uh, fulfilling the time between the advents. There's seven different uh, passages, different sequences in the Revelation. Each one ends with victory. Uh, one of the most obvious is, is in Revelation 11:15, where, Behold, all the uh, kingdoms of this world are become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever. Another one is identified by John Owen and others in the 17th chapter, where the uh, ten kings representing all the kingdoms of the world destroy the false prophet. They destroy all false religion, in effect. They have converted to Christ, as John Owen says, and uh, now uh, all false religion has been extirpated. Uh, Revelation 8.1 is also an end point, which is a victory. Remember, there's thunder and rumblings from heaven because God's wrath is being poured out on the earth. Why is there all of a sudden, in the middle of this day, one half hour of nothing, pure peace, quiet, silence in heaven for the space of half an hour? That is because there's no more wrath to be poured out upon the earth. That's a victory. Heaven is quiet, if you will, because there's nothing to rumble against uh, from the heavens in terms of uh, uh, recompense to be rained down upon the earth. We can go into other details, but the basic idea is that idealism uh, tries to take seriously these things. And in so doing, we could take seriously um, the amount of blood, say, that is talked about in one part of Revelation that is said to uh, extend to the horse's bridles for this uh, radial measure of 1,600 stadia. If you do a little study, that would be about the blood of 20 billion people. And that's a lot of blood. And that exceeds the population of the Earth. Uh, and, and that, But you now, on the other hand, the wine press of the wrath of God has been operating over the centuries. You could probably take that more literally than you could any other system. 
but I don't see you can take it literally with uh, futurism and because we don't have the population. Uh, Dr. Gary DeMar made an interesting point about the population of horses. He said, well, if you have an army of 200 million people uh, coming across the Euphrates and they're all on horseback, uh, there's only 60 million horses in the entire world. How do you get 200 million people each on one their own horse? You don't. So it's a problem. All right, here's a question from the website. Please discuss the true meaning of Christian liberty. It does not mean do you do you want do what you want to do and what and God must bless, correct? Right. There's no arbitrary or willful component to Christian liberty. Liberty is always under law. Is the reason why Dr. Rashtuni uh, labeled his little anthology of radio talks Law and Liberty because they coordinate their opposite poles or rather their the, the correlates, because liberty, uh, by uh, protecting, say, property, by saying, thou shalt not steal. Now, everyone's property is protected, and now you have liberty with respect to your property that you wouldn't have if people were stealing from it or, or uh, expropriating it from you. Same thing with your life. You need your life, and so uh, the, the prohibition against murder uh, prevents someone from encroaching on your right to life and your liberty to live and have the next breath to yourself, and so at least until God spend a good days has been completed and God takes you wherever you're going to go. So all the, uh, that means, again, that the law of God is a mediator between man and man, and it maximizes liberty. It maximizes liberty in the uh, political realm as well as in the personal realm. And we've gone over this uh, many, many times in these Q&As, so I won't go over it again. But Christian liberty is not an, a contentless liberty. Rather, it is the liberty from God's, uh, uh, in God's law. And we see this in Psalm 119 as an interesting verse there where God says, I walk at liberty because I seek thy commandments. That word liberty is, can be translated literally in I walk in a great space, a so very wide open space, because I seek thy commandments. You see the two things are mixed together. The only reason that he has liberty is because the commandments form the core of a man's ethical uh, backbone. If they're not there, then, of course, we're going to uh, rob from God and rob from our fellow man. And in so doing, the realm of liberty shrinks and contracts because now everyone's on the guard. Now the government has to come in and step in, and, and uh, we, we lose everything when Christian self-government declines. When Christian self-government declines, external government increases because, again, nature abhors a moral vacuum in this case. Okay, here's another question. What about areas where believers disagree? Well, I disagree with that. <laughs> so uh, the upshot is that, uh, and a principle that Dr. Bettner, Lorraine Bettner, the Calvinist, uh, wrote about repeatedly, and in the, I don't think it was original with him, and we've mentioned it here in these Q&As, you know, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. So you can uh, operate in terms of uh, an area of disagreement, and I've spoken to this even in the, Q, uh, the breakout session last week in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, to the effect that God has not promised a doctrinal unity for us yet. That time that's predicted by Isaiah in the 50th chapter, where Zion shall see eye to eye, is at the far end of the, uh, the church's run and the Great Commission's advance. So that means that the unity we have to have is has to be an organic one. That said, we should certainly provoke, promote with conviction those things that are essential, uh, especially if, say, unborn lives are at stake. Let's make that... Uh, rallying point that is of relevance currently because you know the state has framed mischief using law as Psalm 9420 says in regard to the murder of the unborn so if we can't uh, organ or unite around that then we have a fundamental fundamental issue and there's going to be uh, inevitable conflict between believers 
on that point because the law of God is being slacked. And at that point, God himself will intervene. Uh, it is time for thee, O Lord, to work because they've made void thy law. Psalm 119, verse 126, which appears to be one of the calling or main verses that was emphasized at the future Christendom conference. You make void God's law, you make it empty, you may don't apply it, then God goes to work. And that's a most grievous, terrible thing when God is moved out of his heavens to interfere or intervene because we're not doing what we're supposed to do. And part of it is because of the lawlessness of the church. The antinomianism of the pulpit, pulpit uh, creates this issue. So uh, the church is always going to end up splintering if we're not going to unite on something that fundamentally mediates between all of us, and that has to be the law of God. So antinomianism inherently is going to split us all apart. And at the same time, antinomianism will say we're divisive because we're promoting God's law. And yet the law of God is something that you unite around. How do I know this? Because in Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4, we say, Hey, come, let us go up into the mountain of the house of the Lord, and he will teach us his ways, and the law will go forth from Jerusalem. You see, there's a uniting, a confluence. It's a, all the nations flow together toward the law of God. So if you want to unite people, teach the law of God. You go get the, the flack, you know, the chaff will disappear, but the true wheat will unite. So... There's a, prom a promise there in Isaiah 2 that you can take to the bank, and, and I think we are uh, not doing ourselves any favors by soft uh, peddling the law of God. We should promote it because when it's promoted in its entirety, jot and tittle, boom, what do you have? You have liberty maximized, and you promote it that way. You say, hey, guess what? You're, uh, all the governments combined are exacting 11,000 times more taxes than the Bible requires in the poll tax for civil government. You give a new vision of what the law of God gives us. And you don't implement that from the top down. You say the way we get there is through Christian self-government. By us governing ourselves, then the need for external government is, and you roll back the external government. You make it of non-effect. There's nothing it can do. If the, if the church were to obey the poor tithe, what would you have happen? All those that welfare mechanism would have no, no one to deal with. Aiden asks, uh, where should we start to define or defend Christian individualism? Well, of course, this has to do with the um, point of liberty of conscience, right? And they always say that the most important property that you write you have is the property in your own conscience, the liberty of your own conscience. Uh, and I think that that's a fundamental. They always say the only thing that can bind the conscience, in other words, restrict the liberty of the conscience, is the Word of God, not the Word of man. Now, the Word of man can do this lawlessly, uh, with power, but not authority. Authority is valid or legitimate uh, exercise of power under God's law. If it is lawless, then it, of course it's, it's powerful, but has no uh, actual authority behind it. It is a lawless thing, and therefore it is premised and built on sand and can't last. Empires built on raw will never last. They collapse, and we've seen this throughout history. God pretty much guarantees it. You know, what, uh, Whatsoever thing God has not planted shall be rooted up. Matthew 15, 13. You can take that to the bank. So when you put yourself on a bad foundation as a culture, now you're going to reap the fruit of it. Um, where's Philistia today? Good question. We, we don't see them around anymore, do we? Welcome, Becky, to our Q&A session today. Uh, there was a question a little bit earlier on uh, polygamy and uh, concubinage. And uh, Dr. Rushton made an interesting point. He said uh, polygamy is its uh, own penalty. Uh, you can certainly look up the uh, discussions of this topic in the Institutes of Biblical Law and uh, gain some insights there on the matter. Uh, there have been some ep 
uh, efforts to try to support these ideas in, in a reconstruction setting. I believe they do not um, they do not meet the minimum requirement to be considered uh, uh, valid or because, for example, if uh, every man was a polygamist, that's a problem because it means not everyone can be married at that point, right? If, if you approximately have as many women as men in a culture, and every man has two wives, then you're going to have a bunch of um, spinsters. <laughs> so you can call the polygamy movement the spinsterism movement uh, as a consequence of that. Now, I've placed a unnecessarily derogatory um, spin on that, admittedly. And then some would say, well, that's not fair, Martin. That's not your style to be unfair. That is true. But I haven't seen an adequate answer to that question. And so I put it out there saying it is a, it's a serious question. You know, <clears throat> apart from all the other uh, uh, debates that can be raised from Scripture. Now, that said, I've seen at least one polygamist uh, defender. He's not personally a polygamist, but he uh, defends this practice and has written a, a treatise on this, uh, attempt to make a very a good attempt reasonably decent attempt, if you will, uh, to answer some of the common challenges to polygamy and do, I'd say, maybe a B-minus job at it. In other words, he didn't uh, slam home run, but he certainly gave the uh, monogamous side a run for their money, which means to me uh, two things. If you have a very adept uh, proponent or an, an, on the other side of the equation, you have to do your homework. You're not going to be able to phone it in with quick... Uh, facile answers. Uh, it doesn't play that way in the real world. You have to know your stuff and you have to go deeper. You have to go with that intensive element I always call it, digger, digging deeper into the scripture because an, a, a, an attack on monogamous marriage, if you will, uh, can only be uh, defended by the strong medicine and that means deep, deep, deep study. It's not a quick, I have a quick answer and down you go. No, yeah, actually the polygamists have promoted some uh, uh, replies to those that are challenging for a monogamist to answer. So you have to deal with it at a points where the other position is, is weak and, and emphasize that. And if it is weak, then it's not going to stand. So attack them properly. If you're going to attack polygamists, uh, don't think it's a walk in the park to go do it. It can be done, and it should be done, but it's not going to be done uh, with uh, you know, zero homework. You're going to do your homework. You're going to go in that, that path. Do you think there's an obligation of believers to marry? Is singleness normative scripturally? Uh, I think that almost dovetails with the other question, because certainly <laughs> if the polygamists are right, and I don't believe they are at all, uh, then singleness would be normative for most women. Half the women out there would, would have to be signal. So here's the question about your station. The Great Commission normally is uh, prosecuted uh, by the man and his helpmeet. The two of them were charged with having dominion, working together, a household, if you will. So the family, the notion of family being the fundamental unit of society, the basic unity of society, as Rashtuni would say, it comes to the fore. And so, yes, you can have individuals doing the same kind of work, but I believe that those men uh, or women in this instance, whatever it might be, uh, that service is extraordinary. It is, uh, God will bless it, he may call certain people to these things, but I don't believe it to be the, a, a norm in the sense that that's what you strive for, singleness. Now, if the option is stay single or marry an unbeliever, you're going to stay single because your options, that at that point, if that's the reality where you are at right now, then 
that is God's will for you, is singleness, because you cannot uh, be unequally yoked. Then the Great Commission is definitely going to be compromised. You can do a lot more as a single person studying the Word of God at that point and waiting uh, upon the Lord in respect to that. And you need to be effective. You can't say, oh, I can't do the Great Commission until such time as I have a husband or I have a wife. No, you have to move forward. Then what happens is that you catch the eye of someone else who's going the same direction as you are, and uh, now you find yourselves equally yoked. You're certainly yoked in the same direction, a parallel path's going, and uh, that invites the, uh, the promise of a, uh, a union uh, where the two become greater than the uh, sum of the parts. And then the individual ministries emerge, and it's an amazing thing. It's a blessed thing, and God shapes the future through those two who are faithful to walking in the same direction, being agreed. Chuck asks, how can one exercise economic dominion in our current climate of dishonest money and fraudulent banking? Her and Peter Allison gave an excellent answer to that question at the um, Chalcedon 50th anniversary event in Austin a couple of years back, 2015. And he said, the first thing you can do is get out of debt. Because the second you do that, you've already, uh, because the government monetizes debt and it turns it into a form of enslaving us, when you get out of debt, you're contracting the government money supply. And the more Christians actually got out of debt instead of, let's build this church building and get a massive 50-year <laughs> mortgage on it at a terrible rate of interest and let's put this on the necks of our children and grandchildren to pay for. If we got out of that mode, there'd be a tremendous shrinkage of government, you see. Just recently at the Chalcedon Foundation Facebook page, uh, I believe there was a, uh, a post that related to this entire question of, uh, of getting into debt and things on this order. Uh, I have to wind back and take a look, but uh, we speak to it all the time. Uh, again, there's that tape series about economics, money, and the future. I misnamed it last week, um, uh, and I probably just misnamed it again today, but it's a three CD series that's worth seeing how Rushduni talks about it. And I think the last lecture is how the Christian can exercise dominion through economics. What a concept, right? Sounds like the, uh, and, and he builds up to that point from the first two lectures to the third and final uh, when he drives home the point that he's making. Are you interested in Christian education? Would you like to learn how to be a Christian teacher or how to run your very own Christian school with success? The GCS Apprenticeship Program can help. Learn more on our website at gcsapprenticeship.com. So, how do we also do with the current climate of dishonest money and fraudulent banking? So, uh, the fraudulent banking can be wound back simply by getting out of debt. But the uh, dishonest money is trickier, and this is where then you create alternate currencies. You pay your people, you know, to the extent that you can, in silver and gold. And like I said, I know folks that are doing exactly this. They're handing them off a maple leaf or an American eagle and things on this order, a double eagle as the case may be, and paying in weights of gold instead of the, uh, the silver. And this takes you out of the fractional reserve system. It means that you're no longer dealing with the question of a currency that is a, an abomination, according to Scripture. According to the Bible, you're not even supposed to have it. Yeah, there it is, economics, money, and hope. Um, thank you. Thank you, Calcedon Foundation, for having my back. Yeah, you want to move in that direction of... Um, denominating things in gold. Because if you pay someone uh, an ounce of gold for his work, guess what? A year from now, it's still an ounce of gold. And chances are, denominated against a, an American dollar, which is usually a, a devaluing currency, uh, you can get more dollars for it. Though why you would want them, I don't know. Because a Federal Reserve note, again, is a violation of Scripture. 
In the Ritz of Reconstruction, Dr. Rashtundi points out the fact that uh, the lexicographer, Noah Webster, famously attacked the legal tender laws that were being debated in the uh, legislature. He said they are the devil in the flesh because now it allows, and he took it from a very interesting point of view, it violates contracts. If I contract with you to borrow $10 and give you back $11, when the government comes in and, and tampers with that contract, I might be actually giving you back less than the $11 because of inflation. So all contracts are now null and void because the government reserves the right to tamper with the terms by messing with the medium of exchange that the contract is premised on. You assume it to be constant, but it is not. It is not solid. It is uh, continually fluctuating and always fluctuating in the favor of expanding the power of the state. Oh, that was the point. Yeah, Rashtuni, uh, it was a little blurb. He says, when people say, you know, stop inflation, it's like saying castrate the state. <laughs> so uh, powerful words, but that's the upshot. The state grows by leaps and bounds, primarily with this false or this hidden inflation of uh, tax, hidden tax of inflation. And because this government's not willing to actually tax you where they might want to get that, they hide that through tempering with the money supply and controlling it. And in actual fact, you should have a free market in the money supply. It should be a commodity money. And all this stuff is discussed at tremendous length in Dr. Rashtuni's material. Because as it turns out, economics is extremely important from a biblical point of view. Money is talked about constantly throughout Scripture, far more than the second coming of Christ, for that matter. So there's more reason for us to be concerned about it. And it appears to be where we are weakest, where our character is revealed in terms of, oh, but I can get this if I uh, go into debt to acquire it, things in this order. So economics is a big area, and there's more that we can done economically. But if you, by just merely doing, uh, having a level of Christian self-government in regard to money and setting, uh, uh, creating, if you will, alternate currencies that are accepted by mutual agreement, like paying debts in silver and gold, you've already taken the government out of the picture. And by taking them out of the picture, uh, God's in the picture, because now you don't have to issue up, I'm dealing with abominations. I'm dealing with something that I'm not allowed to have. There's a reason why when Jesus was confronted about paying taxes to Caesar, Caesar, tribute to Caesar, he didn't have that money on his person. He had to call for someone outside the circle of the disciples to produce a denarius, because the denarius was not allowed to be in his purse. And they had a purse. Jesus and the disciples had a purse. It was held in trust by Judas Iscariot. He was in charge of the disposition of everything in the purse, and he stole from it. Ever since that time, those who were in charge of the money had been stealing from the purse, even Christ's purse. People who put in the money into the purse were women. Isn't that interesting? I find, and Rashtuni points it out constantly, that Christ's ministry was funded by women, and the only man in charge of the money stole from it. In any event, there was no denarii in the purse. It was all uh, shekel temples and things of this order. It was legitimate money. And therefore, Jesus didn't have it on his person. He was not uh, under economic subjection to Rome like his fellow uh, Israelites were who were posing this question to him. And therefore, he had some uh, sharp things to say about that. Give back to Caesar what is his. Give to God, render unto God what belongs to him. But they should never have had that on the, in their person in the first place. All right, Aiden asks, can you explain your interpretation on the law that requires employers to pay their workers? Most people would interpret this, let's rewind back, interpret this law to mean do not hold their money beyond the contracted payment date. And they might 
be more to it, but the upshot, yeah, actually, I dealt with this question because I uh, speak about it. Are you being defrauded by your employer? And according to this passage in Leviticus 19, if you're not being paid at the end of the day for your labors, uh, then you are being defrauded. And we all agree to this defrauding because you may not get the job if you don't. So you're coerced into being defrauded by the system that we have. And it's always argued pragmatically, well, we can't pay you daily. That'd be inconvenient. That The accounting department would go nuts with that. So not true anymore. In fact, after I um, spoke on this at the lecture, my breakout session, called The Kingdom of God, Extensive, Intensive, and Protensive. It's uh, posted on the futureofchristendom.org uh, uh, website if you want to check it out. Uh, Lyft, for example, is a, uh, a ride-sharing service which pays you at least daily, if not quicker, and that's quite an incentive. Why would you want to uh, drive for another service that pays you weekly or every uh, two weeks or something like that if, someone, if you're getting that money today? You earned it today. Why wouldn't you have it today? And that's a problem. So the entire concept of ownership of labor comes into play here. And it moved uh, some of our listeners to um, conviction. You know, someone raised a hand up and said, wow, um, I'm paying weekly and I want to do right by God. What do I do? This is not, how do I go about changing this? And I said, it's not going to be easy. Uh, our system is geared around a system that is inherently defrauding your employees. I said, but there are going to be blessings upon you for observing what God requires. So it's a big deal. So now it walks away someone wanting to do the right thing, having heard this. But it just shows how ignorant we are of uh, how we do things. No, I think the uh, the notion that that text in Leviticus 19 simply means whatever the contracted payment date is, uh, you can insert that as some kind. So it's a kind of a placeholder. You can say, you know, if it stays with you after the week, it's wrong. Uh, no, it's supposed to be daily because that's a unit of work you work during the day and then you rest you can't work at night according to scripture and that's before electric lights and edison but nonetheless the point was uh it's a biblical image of the unit of work uow we even use this term <laughs> in software industry today what's the unit of work uh and the unit of work in the bible is the day because that's what you were given today and so you should be paid for that unit of work uh, that might surprise folks and say well i can uh what's wrong with the weekly paycheck uh, the Bible says it's wrong. So it's not that the Bible is being arbitrary. It knows what's in the hearts of men and why the employer would want to wait uh, and hold those wages in his pocket for the six days before he finally pays you for it. So it is problematic. If the Bible says it's defrauding, that's a very strong word. Very strong word. So for us to poo-poo it and say, nah, that gets us in big trouble because now we're calling to question. We're judging the law of God and the lawgiver at the same time. I don't want to go there. I think you don't want to either. Uh, question rolled up. You're coming faster than usual this week, which is nice from one point of view. Back to the wheat and tares. It does seem passive about building the kingdom, but the following parables of mustard seed and leaven give us more optimistic view of work, correct? Uh, yes, Anto. Uh, let's talk about the wheat and the tares. Again, now it's been raised as a Q&A. I can officially answer this without stealing anything that Mark may have had to say about it. I hope he got to it this week because I wasn't able to tell. Uh, if he's coming out next week, then you're getting a double dose of the same interpretation. So here's the story with the parable of the wheat and tares. It has a protensive element in it because the entire world started out pretty much uh, ate wheat and no tares, or, or all tares, if you will, at the time of Noah. And all the tares were wiped out at one time. And then Noah moves on with his family and his three sons. And you have you know, so many disciples 
500 are watching the Ascension, 3,000 added on Pentecost. And so, but the rest of the world is all tares. And so what you have now is that the wheat are growing. And how do you get someone to become a wheat? A lot of these guys, it means that all these wheat are, a lot of them are going to come from fathers and mothers that are tares, unbelievers. As the Great Commission expands, what happens is that the, uh, there's a process by which tares give rise to wheat offspring. My, uh, I, that's true for a lot of us. Most of us weren't born into a Christian household. I don't know if you can hear the thunder in the background. Depends how good this iPhone microphone is. So we'll see if that doesn't knock off our internet. Oops. And if it does, I'll know. Uh, but God seals the hand of man with weather. Look it up in Job 37. So if he seals our, uh, the hand of my doing this Q&A, that's his business. To accept it. So, again, what happens with uh, tares? They can give rise to wheat. If you look at Hebrews 7, there's an interesting argument raised that Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. Now, you cannot find any instance in Scripture where Levi takes some money or wheat or whatever it is and hands it to Melchizedek. And yet the Scripture says he paid tithes to Melchizedek. How is this possible? He was in the loins of his father, Abraham, when Abraham paid the tithes to Levi. So that's a surprise, right? It means that Levi, if you will, was uh, in, seen in prospect, was present in the loins. The potential for him, his, his, his reality of him being born, was already there. So you had the situation where Levi is uh, attributed to making the, paying the tithes, being subordinated through his uh, you know, the great grandfather uh, Abraham. So same thing with Abraham himself. Abraham himself was elect, regenerate, but his dad was a pagan, Tira. Interestingly, sounds like Tira Ter, doesn't it? He was born from a Ter named Tira. So there's this pattern by which, when the Great Commission moves forward, you have tares giving rise to wheat. And this is the reason why the uh, and Jesus, Jesus gave only one reason why the angels should not remove the tares. What was that reason? You would pull up wheat when you do it. Now we hear all sorts of, I think, nonsensical agricultural explanations. Well, if you pull the wheat out, the wheat, uh, tear out, then the wheat is uprooted at the same time. Now these angels are capable of precision strikes. I assure you, if you look through the passages like the angel of death in uh, Exodus and being marked with a protection sign in Ezekiel and things in this order, uh, angels have no trouble identifying a terror, and, and they could have taken Hitler out if they, God had called them to do so. There's no problem at all with taking out a tear and not hurting any wheat, unless the tear has wheat in its loins and uh, yet to be born. And that's what we have. In fact, the, <laughs> you look at the end of Psalm 22, you shall proclaim uh, uh, these things, these uh, God's um, blessings, if you will, to a, a people not yet born. The notion of a people not yet born is huge in Scripture. And it, it is a dominant feature that your grandchildren are present in you at the moment. And you owe them something as a consequence, not debt, but something more profound, which is the gift of the kingdom of God to them. So, the reason that, the, that Jesus gave for not pulling up a tear is that you'll pull up wheat. So that means that all the tares that are out there have one of two destinies. The one that Jesus described by implication that they're going to have wheat as offspring, or then the other one. It turns out that the unregenerate have another fate that they will suffer. As hope we're still live because we just had a power failure. I don't know if we are. I'm going to keep going just in case we are still running. A um, and this is laid out in Psalm 109. I think it's like verse 4 to 13, 14, uh, about the wicked. It says, In the generation to come, 
their uh, posterity will be cut off and uh, their name shall be blotted out. You see, what happens is that if you're a terror, you either have a, your posterity is cut off, no children, no grandchildren, somewhere down the line, or you're going to have wheat. And as this process progresses through time, the wheat field is to be seen from beginning to end. And it's got a lot of tares, dominated by tares at one end, and as it moves to the future, it's all wheat at the end. And this arises because of the explicit reason that Jesus gave for not touching the tares by uh, pulling them out and destroying them, because you will, in fact, destroy the wheat that has yet to be born. So you have to see the notion of timeliness, of a people not yet born, in terms of that parable. And you have to say, okay, there's two routes. Tares are going to have elect offspring, and so they're going to have more wheat, and or they're going to have their posterity cut off. One obvious way in which the posterity is cut off is that um, homosexual couples don't have children in the nature of the case. That is a dead end genetically, and so their posterity is cut off because uh, it is a the fruit of that particular uh, approach. It's a dead end, and they're not going to have a posterity. And the name, in generation to come, their name will be blotted out. The only way they can have their name persist is by adoption, by borrowing from uh, people who are not homosexual, who can't have children. So, all I have to say, the parable of the wheat and tares does not teach that they're all contemporaneously growing at the same rate. It rather teaches the opposite. Don't touch the tares because wheat are coming out of them. And if you run this through as a computer algorithm, say, okay, start with a population of X, it's going to grow, and you're going to uh, have uh, wheat coming out of the tares, you're going to have the tares not having posterity, so you, you run this through an al algorithm, guess what the computer will tell you at the end of that process? 100% wheat at the end of the day. No tares left. And that's why Warfield says, at the end of the day, there'll be no tares left in the wheat field. There shall be no more chaff on the threshing room floor. God will have thoroughly purged the threshing room floor. Dia Catharizo completely purged it. And it's done by the engine of election. God's election sets in motion which tares are going to have elect children, which tares are going to have no children or grandchildren down the line. And so at the end of the line, guess what happens? No man shall need to teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of the greatest. And, of course, another interesting point about that new covenant promise about the expansion of God's kingdom is what? I will write my law on their hearts and their minds, and I write them. So theonomy and postmillennialism are tied at the hip. You can't extricate them. You can't pull them apart. Those verses are right next to each other. That's one promise. It's one prophecy. So it's exciting to me to see that uh, we're probably on the right track uh, with all of this because the Bible confirms that new covenant of Jeremiah repeatedly, three times at least, in the book of Hebrews. So it's not just some Old Testament, old folky stuff. It is uh, current events for us. We're seeing that process by which God writes the law of God on his law, on our hearts and minds. Which raises a final uh, proviso. A lot of people say, well, you know, God now writes the uh, law on everyone's hearts. I believe this is a misunderstanding of what's being said in Romans. The New Covenant is talks about the law of God being written on the heart that it might attain up spontaneous obedience. And it's to the regenerate. So what's being talked about in Romans? Romans is actually talking about, and if you look at the wording, and Bunsen made this point very clear, it's not the law that's being written on the law, on the heart, or the unbeliever, the unregenerate. It says the work of the law is being written. Of the law modifies the word work, which means conscience. They are conscience, conscious that they are violating God's law, and therefore it excuses them. But it's a different thing than the, than the New Covenant notion of the law of God being written on the mind and the heart, obtaining obedience. 
because in the New Covenant sense, it results in no man having to teach their neighbor's name nor the Lord, because everyone knows the Lord. So it presupposes the universal expansion of the gospel. And this dovetails with Warfield's interpretation of Matthew 5.18. Let's see what else we have here. Roll back up. Right, uh, Andrea Schwartz says, one of the things, and this relates to the economic dominion question, one of the things we can do is to pay what we owe immediately rather than waiting to receive a bill. Yes, you can get out ahead of things. Because remember, uh, what debt is is a form of slavery. So you want to get out of it as fast as you can. Uh, there's no reason to wait for the, the thing. You can get out of it because now it's not over your head anymore. And every step taken in that direction helps. Uh, you might say, I have this big debt. Was it going to do me any good? Well, guess what? There's some interesting teaching on this in Haggai. Uh, I related to the Temple of the Lord, and I spoke about this on a Q&A earlier, so it looks like we come full circle on a lot of these things. They were letting the, king, the uh, Temple of God timbers rot out there at the beginning of Haggai, and God's very upset. He says, you're seeing to your own houses, but not doing anything about my house. And that's why I'm putting a hole in your purse. Mm -hmm. So, uh, But what happens when they actually take the first steps to go into the forest to acquire new timbers, at that precise moment that they turned their feet to the other direction and started to go into the forest, even though they hadn't cut down a tree yet, or let alone laid a new timber to start the work, God lifted the curse. God blessed the effort of at least changing direction. Because God takes those first initial steps seriously and He blesses them. He doesn't hurt them or doesn't say, I'm going to wait till you get all the way to the, to the finish line, then I'll, they'll bless you. No, God blesses the first efforts to turn around. So he, it's not demoralizing. In fact, it's encouraging, incentivizing to know that God will act as soon as we move in the right direction. So, yeah, it, there's every reason to stay out of danger. There's an interesting discussion of what is danger in uh, one of the Word and Season volumes that we publish, Rashtuni's um, California Farmer uh, columns. And to be in danger meant to be in debt, <laughs> the original meanings, if you will. And so Rashtuni, after he discusses it, he asks at the very end, he says, are you in danger? So if you're in debt, you're in danger. Uh, by the way, present company, uh, same issue, right? So I don't want to be hypocritical about that. Jed is with us. Aiden asks, if you believe in eschatologicalism, all tares will bear wheat. Well, they'll either bear wheat or, like I said earlier, they are, the, the posterity will be cut off, and that's God's business. God controls the womb. God controls everything. There's nothing outside the control of God. So, yeah, the notion that Psalm 37 or Psalm 109 talks about, about the posterity of the wicked, uh, being cut off and their name being blotted out in the next generation, that can apply as much as the other principles. So there's two principles at work, that tares can't be pulled out by angels because they have wheat coming, or the other uh, providential um, way by which God deals with them, their posterity is cut off, they have no offspring. Yeah, they will not have unlimited tear offspring. That's simply not going to happen because that means God lied. And I'm not going to go there. It's impossible for God to lie. And so he confirms these things with an oath in Hebrews 6. Let's see, next question. Live action. Yeah, the work of the law. Michael's with us. Michael Payne, one of my... I like this brother, Michael Payne, because he told me once, and I recorded it in one of the Chalcedon reports, he says, you know, if nothing else, just take me and throw me at the enemy. I want to be of some use. So just, if you have to use me just as a bomb to throw at somebody who's to at the enemy, if you will, Satan, do it. So here's someone who wants to be used of God. I wish that more people had that same attitude, you know. 
Uh, if the only use is to take me and throw me at Satan, do that. At least I can knock him down. Aiden asks, Aiden, you're kind of dominating the discussion. Good man. I'm not lost, not lost for questions. Uh, what would that mean if Covenant Keeper's womb is made barren in that context? Well, it depends by what means it's there, the womb is made barren. If it's sovereignly by God, then that's sovereignly by God. It's, there's not a lot you can do about that. Uh, we have to um, take everything that God dishes out to us at that point. If it's barren uh, by self-inflicted barrenness, uh, that's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? Uh, and these, I've seen these questions come up in some recent Facebook uh, exchanges. Some that I struck thought were less than edifying, more ed legalism and, and Phariseeism that I would have liked to have seen. I'd actually like to see none of that. But in the sense that the, we, we start to move over to binding of consciences in that area. So an area, always an area of concern there. Uh, then the other way that can be made barren is say the government decides, hey, you know, would it be nice if we stuffed some contraceptives in these vaccines or something like that? I'm not trying to strike a conspiratorial tone, but uh, I don't trust the government. So I won't advance those theories till I have proof, but nothing would surprise me anymore. So, John, good to see you here in the mix. Um, yeah, if you're keeping the covenant of God, uh, and we have some cases, I think obviously you're going to take it down to prayer. And you're going to uh, do whatever you can if you, it's in your heart to raise up children unto the Lord because, of course, they are arrows in, in your quiver. I know that that term quiverful has been used now as a pejorative, but I've dealt with this, I think, adequately in the article Patriarchy versus Feminism up on the Chalcedon website. Perhaps uh, Andre or someone will post a link and you can see what I have to say about the issue because I think it's important to get the proper balance. It's not the one side nor the other that are in the right. Uh, Dr. Rushtuni actually finds the biblical uh, options to be somewhere in the middle uh, where no one wants to be. So what is the best way to determine if negative circumstances are corrective because of sin or just the sovereign will of God? Well, I guess self-reflection and comparison against the, the known law of God would be a good place to start because... <laughs> someone says, howdy. Thank you, John. Uh, we don't often know. He sends, for example, I have a storm brewing overhead. And in Job 37, he says, sometimes he sends, if you say, the heavy rain for correction. Now, what an interesting concept. He's not correcting nature. It's not rabbits and wolves and coyotes and bears that are being corrected. It's humans. He seals the hand of man to correct us. So there's always a correction, a chastisement that's at heart here. Uh, so all that to say, um, we don't often know. And some of the heroes of the faith didn't know either. So they said, my best bet is to assume it's for correction and search myself uh, and, and move in terms of that. As we said, I think last week, um, when uh, Shimei was throwing stones and cursing David, David knew that Shimei's reason for doing so was wrong, but he said, let him curse. He knew he was guilty of other things. So... Uh, he, he knew that he was due for some correction on other matters. And he let the sticks fall uh, from Shimei to do that. And it takes a big man to say, well, I might not be guilty of it, but I'll take the penalty. In other words, to uh, absorb, if you will, the attack, uh, which is a form of, uh, of, of dominion in a way. Because, uh, And we have an article about this um, that I think Chris Ortiz wrote in the Chalcedon uh, Faith for All of Life magazine. Uh, which does a very good job, pastorally phrased, of 
how we can go down that direction, uh, take the, the dark provinces and, uh, and improve them, as the Puritans would say. If something bad has happened, you can improve it. You can build on that into a positive. You can turn a negative into a positive. Uh, what you've intended for evil, uh, I will turn into something good. So all these things are ways that we can we can move. Always in terms of the law of God. Always refer back to the law of God. And always know that this book of Job tells us God always operates sovereignly. He's not lawless. He's doing what he will with his, what he created. He has absolute ultimate right of ownership over us. And yet his covenant goodness to us is unquestionable. I don't know if you can hear it, but the rain is falling down pretty heavy here. So we'll see how we do in terms of... Uh, God sealing the hand of this Q&A session. Nancy Wilk has joined us. Nancy, just so you know, we answered your question almost off the top uh, of the hour, as they say, just as we opened. So uh, this is being recorded. You can probably capture the answer then. But it was a very good question. It was, like I said, it was a follow-up to the, one of the discussions last week about the exercise of discipline over children. And uh, we rightfully corrected and amended our point to say it is not abstract. It is not a contentless thing is mediated by the law of God at all points. Time for one more question. We'll see if one comes up before the uh, thunder and lightning shuts us down. Any questions? My general feeling is these Q&As are not unquestionable. So there's a question out there somewhere. Not a problem, Nancy. Glad to have uh, answered the question. It was a very good challenge. Uh, I'm glad we uh, captured it in the um, stream underneath the uh, video. And we are live with Q&A with Calcedon. And Calcedon FM. I think we've finished for the day. We've exhausted everybody. And we try to be exhaustive, but not exhausting. So I'm glad everyone was able to uh, log in and uh, hopefully get something of value, have your questions answered. We do seem to cover a lot of the same ground over and over and you know, a little bit of new stuff each time. So we'll certainly grow the scope and uh, compass of what we're dealing with. We'll see everyone uh, next week. Uh, we'll be here. It'll be August uh, 20th, about that Sunday, that uh, we will take a hiatus, I believe, unless I can communicate and do a broadcast uh, from Australia. We're going to look into that possibility. And if so, I'll tell you all about what uh, we did and then see if there's any questions uh, that can cross the equator down to where I'm going to be. Right, send your questions to uh, ask.calcedon.edu uh, and uh, we will uh, filter them and answer the ones we want to. No, no, that's not what we do. We answer them all, even if they're tough. Uh, and if you don't believe that, <laughs> If you don't believe that, we have a, one of the uh, Faith for All Life articles I wrote was tough questions, tough an answers to tough questions about Christian Reconstruction. If you read that, you see we don't shy away from the tough questions. We, we really do engage uh, because we believe if you have the biblical truth, uh, we shouldn't be afraid to apply it uh, and move forward on, in terms of it. So I pray you all do the same this coming week. Find ways to uh, apply your faith in uh, ways that extend his kingdom. Uh, through Christian self-government. <laughs> yeah, I can. Yep, definitely putting the gun to my head. Gotta love it. Uh, we work without a net, folks. I'll see you guys next week, still without the net. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Selbretti. We pray that you have been edified by the content that you've heard on this episode. Please visit calcedon.edu for some great resources and reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you in all that you do. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.